to review a little bit. In emphasizing daily life here for the week, and I hope we've done enough of that, because if we tell you it's important and then just leave it at that, don't ask you about it or talk about it, then the mind conveniently concludes that it's just nice, but it's uh, empty, empty rhetoric. Uh, because the, the point is to begin to see life as a whole, and that what we're learning here uh, in this very protected, beautiful environment uh, is meant to be taken home with us under very, very different conditions, obviously. But at least for the, the basic ideas to get across, uh, that, for example, daily life is valuable as a Dharma practice. It's not simply that we have to do it in order to stay alive. It's that it's a very rich source of the same kinds of things that we look for in a retreat and during sitting. But uh, it's only natural that sitting and retreats are featured uh, for good reason. There is something precious and unique about them. They are special but then in a very profound way, they're not special. Uh, because what I have found all too often happens is that uh, we invest these forms uh, with tremendous importance and value, and a divorce develops between what we call meditation and the rest of our life, which is perhaps more than 99% where we're not sitting. For example, over the years, if I say, how's your practice going? And if I didn't say all this, if I asked any of you, you'd probably start talking about your sitting. Okay. And so one of the things we do in Cambridge is we say no. Uh, I say, oh, you know, I, I just couldn't get to do much sitting. Uh, I'm often treated as the uh, truant officer in, in Cambridge. Uh, I said, well, okay, we're a very busy week, and there was some illness in the family and so forth, but uh, life goes on. Practice is not just sitting. And trying to improve ways of understanding this and, and to improve ways of teaching it, what I've discovered is that there are many people who understand and really grasp that it's necessary um, to respect every aspect of our life. Uh, and yet, there isn't a deep conviction that, let's say, uh, going on a retreat with certain austerities and, uh, out and a, 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 a physical accompaniment uh, and all of the sitting and walking in silence, uh, how could that be equivalent as a possibility of developing wisdom from sitting across the table in the morning from your partner, or husband, or wife, or child. It just isn't, having a cup of tea or coffee, whatever it is. Theoretically it is, but not really. And so how to um, undercut that without discrediting or undermining the sitting? And when I've discovered over the years that uh, when I put a lot of energy uh, there's always a lot of energy going into the sitting, but then if I start talking about daily life and relationship and work and uh, school and raising children and so forth, then people start to slacken off sitting. So then I run over and start putting some more energy into sitting, and then they slacken off on daily life. So uh, a kind of desperate attempt is what we're doing here to understand that uh, it's a whole. What I see it as a practice for whole people. Uh, let me give you an analogy. My hobby is, one of my hobbies, or it's a real interest, has been for a long time, is herbalism, herbal medicine, um, plant medicine. And within the, the uh, herbal field, there's a split. There are some herbalists who um, have followed to some degree, the pharmaceutical model. That, let's say 
if it's ginkgo, and we find out which aspect of ginkgo uh, is what really shows up on tests as being very helpful for the brain, for memory. And so we focus on that, extract it, concentrate it, and um, that would be one model, and deliver it in potency, in high potency. The other approach is to understand that we don't understand everything in nature, and that although clearly, let's say, there's one element that's recognizable, and even scientifically tests out, the whole plant has in it uh, wonders that we don't know anything about, but we just don't have scientific language for it. Maybe we don't have, uh, even herbal medicine doesn't have names for what is there. And it's more of a trust in nature, that the wisdom of nature can be trusted. And that's the whole plant approach. So uh, sometimes Dharma can become fragmented, where we feature certain things at the expense of everything else. Now, perhaps you can do that if your life is mainly organized around sitting and solitude and quiet for extended periods of time, but even in monasteries, uh, even ones that are dedicated to meditation. Uh, There's a daily life, and there are people there who affect each other and so forth. So what is being said here is that every aspect of life um, is worthy of respect. Um, Any Catholics here or ex-Catholics? Okay. I hope you take this in the right way. (laughs) Uh, Many years ago, in the early days of INMS, um, there was a Trappist monk who lived at Spencer named Father Theophane. I don't know if any of you remember him or go back that far. Uh, The Trappist monks are not slouches. They do lots of uh, contemplative practice. At any rate, he had the idea that why don't the two of us lead a Buddhist Catholic retreat. Okay, so we did. Uh, so this is his, he had an idea, which he shared with me, which I thought was beautiful. His teaching was so simple. Instead of seeing um, intimacy with all things, as we've been emphasizing, he would just say, infinite respect. That's what all spiritual life is about. And then in explaining that, means that everything's worthy of respect. Uh, So I taught the meditation piece. And uh, I would say it was a pact. There were about 100 people, all Catholic except me. (laughs) And I'm the only meditation guy here. Father Theophane knew plenty about it. And he had his full Trappist robes. And uh, there were people who were devout Catholics, ex-Catholics, angry Catholics, way before all this. (laughs) You know, okay. Uh, and so some of his teaching, he would give teachings too, and had to do with infinite respect. For example, you re- whatever the, uh, so many of the mind states that we don't want to be with, can you respect fear? Can you respect loneliness? Can you have respect for the smallest activity of just taking a step mindfully or uh, any aspect of life? Uh, so infinite respect, if you start to go with it, you'll realize that it's quite a powerful, a simple idea. And so he was putting that out, and then he, he demonstrated it. And here's the part where uh, I'm risking things. So a lot of what happened, I would work really hard to try to help people develop samadhi and in-out, in-out concentration. And then we'd have sometimes discussion periods. And it was all on the Catholic Church, and a lot of... Um, anger or regrets or, uh, or not, sometimes positive things. So one person raises his hand and he says, Father Theophane, he said, I've been so disappointed in the Catholic Church. It seems so outdated. It seems really dead. Uh, it, it, it doesn't speak to the modern world at all. It's just so ossified and on and on like that. He said, but I, I want to be a Catholic, but I, I'm having such a hard time. He says, can you give me any advice? So Father Theophane got quiet, and then he said, remember, this is a priest. And he said, well, it's a little like this. Uh, Let's say you have an old mother, and she's senile, and she's lying in bed, and 
saliva is dripping down her mouth, you still love her, you know? You come, <laughs> you, hold, you hold her hand, you're kind to her. You don't reject her just because she's senile and there's drool coming out of her. Okay. Uh, that's infinite respect. And it's all, uh, nothing, everything's worthy of respect. And when it isn't, you see what that is. Why is there, why are we cutting off some aspect of life and then replacing it with one part, making that stand for this is spiritual. And in Buddhism, it's very easy to see why the sitting uh, is it, because it's a very powerful form. And the icon here is wherever you look, almost, there's someone sitting in meditation, and uh, you don't see the Buddha vacuuming or the Buddha making love or anything like that. Fine, that's okay, but we need a practice that fits our life, and that's what I mean by whole person. Okay, so all week we've been encouraging you to approach everything in that spirit. Uh, no matter what your yogi job, or uh, you take a look at your room, or dressing, undressing, washing, and so forth. We can, we're not going to follow you around, but I hope you've done some of that uh, to get into the spirit of it and uh, to not leave it here as something special. Oh, that was a really cute retreat. We even they talk a whole Dharma talk on vacuum cleaning. Never heard that before. Um, and one of we left off with one of the main ways in which we're not intimate with what happens is that we get lost in past or future. So we got into a certain a teaching of the Buddha, Bade Karata, uh, where the Buddha talks about. Uh, don't get lost in the future, it's not here. Don't uh, get lost in the, don't try to regain the past, it's over with, and even the present. Don't try to grasp it with ideas. You know, sometimes you have to. So I just wanted to clarify that a little bit because there have been some questions. Um, there are uses, and a big word in, in the Buddhist teaching is skillful. If you're, if you're new to to this uh, approach, uh, this word, uh, it's a kusala and akusala, skillful and unskillful, you'll hear it a lot. Um, what is skillful in the Buddhist teaching is that which is beneficial for you and for others. What is unskillful is that which is harmful for you and for others. So it's a kind of a universal morality in that uh, it's not... You can always take a look at it in a particular context, and of course you have to decide whether it is or it isn't. But for example, this teaching is very clearly delivered by the Buddha to his son, Rahula. And the advice he gives Rahula is before you uh, go into action, whether it's verbal or physical, reflect and think about is what I'm going to say or do, uh, is that going to be beneficial? for myself and for others? If so, then do it. So you can see that's, a, that's the future. You're making an educated guess about something you're about to do, and, well, it seems like this is a, a good thing to do. But then you actually do it. And this is, continues the exchange between the Buddha and his son. He says, and then you do it, and as, you, uh, as it unfolds, you realize it isn't really skillful. I thought it would be, but I'm, I'm wrong. It's harmful. I like it, but I can see that it was the wrong time or the wrong place and that it's uh, backfiring with the other person. Stop. Apologize or find some way to correct it. And then even after the action's over, let's say you determine that this action, verbal or otherwise, is skillful, is beneficial. And you carry out the action and it seems fine. And then from time to time, we were encouraged, that's the short-run view. You might look back and realize, you know, at the time, it, I thought that was really useful. But as I look back, it really wasn't. Uh, so that now it's the past. You're looking in on the past, and you're reflecting and understanding that uh, something I did that I thought would be helpful wasn't. And there may be remorse or guilt, or something like that, so let's say remorse. Uh, the Buddha would say, then said, it's fine to feel some regret, 
you've done something that has caused some suffering. But it's not to get attached to it or get a, become obsessed with it. It's to feel uh, the um, error of your ways, to learn from it, and then to drop it and move on. So it's in the service of learning. That, that's also been emphasized all week. Okay. So you can see there are uh, intelligent uses of the past. There are intelligent uses of the future. Um, it's not like uh, we throw it out. Uh, we have to make educated guesses. We have to plan. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, but when we do it, we know that what we're doing is happening. We're, we're firmly planted in the present moment, knowing that we're reviewing the past, knowing that we're making an educated guess about the future. What the sutra is counseling us against is when we get lost in virtual time, psychological time, and we think it's real. And it also is used to keep us from being fully, really, in now. Capital N-O-W, exclamation point. And the same uh, when we're in the past. There, is, there are good uses of the past, but then we get lost in it. When we get lost in the, in the past, it doesn't mean you, if you have, let's say, a family history or you have roots, it's not saying cut them off, as I, I think I've mentioned it. Uh, but you have to see how you're using it. Is it something that is uh, in the service of, of living, or is it something that's really detrimental, that is really unskillful? And sometimes wisdom uh, goes against uh, common, what seems to be common sense. It's what the Dalai Lama called idiot compassion. When it sentimentally sounds good, but then when you take a hard look at it, it really isn't. Okay. Another source of confusion, uh, someone sent me a note about hope. Well, where is there room for hope? Is there no hope? In the, you know, sometimes I feel really down. Uh, and I read some of the Buddhist stuff, or I remember a talk or something, and it gives me hope. Is that out? Because that's about the future. Uh, hope is not uh, trumpeted in the Buddhist teaching. It's not like uh, making a big thing out of hope. But there is a time and a place for hope. Uh, <clears throat> if you give a person hope, however, who needs hope, however you help that person uh, get that, that can... Uh, pull, help pull the person out of uh, a very bad place and give them energy. But then you have to watch. What is the hope accomplishing? Uh, I see it now, uh, this is on a much larger scale in the Middle East. Based on everything I've read and people I've talked to, uh, there's great hopelessness, let's say, uh, in the Palestinian community. And <clears throat> often what is being talked about is uh, the necessity for hope through uh, investment of funds, through uh, a sense that something really is possible, uh, that a society is possible, that it isn't going to be continuous living in refugee camps because it has felt hopeless for a long time. Okay, so let's say that sounds good. So that if whatever it does, donations from other countries, uh, how Israel behaves, and so forth, the United Nations... Uh, if that arouses hope, uh, and if that hope is used to, to build a society, a new healthy society, then the hope is, is skillful. But if the hope just arouses another fantasy and nothing gets done, it just, so then it will peter out. And so it's a very pragmatic use of past, present, future. <clears throat> Uh, my voice is trying to make it to the finish line. It's unclear uh, whether it's going to do it or not, but let's keep going. Um, what is all this fuss about now? You know, we hear so much about it. And I would say that the present moment has immense significance. Immense. Uh, if you really understand it and get it, you'll see that it's the most it's uh, essential for living. It's essential for liberation. It's essential uh, for so many things. Why? What's the big fuss about now? Because okay. life is lived now. This is when we live out our life. 
It's the only time we do really live out our life because there is nothing else. The future, skillful, even if it is, is a skillful imagining. The past, the same. Uh, the present moment, and here's, I would say, what makes it so important for us as Dharma practitioners. Um, you, we read all these wonderful uh, teachings about where this all goes. In whatever language you like, Nirvana, Kensho, uh, Original Mind, Buddha Nature, uh, Arahant, whatever. How do you get there? Now, what we're doing all week long, I feel, is no matter what you say, we're trying to bring you back to the present moment. Because the mind's uh, habitual tendency, very strong energy, is to not be in the present moment. Somehow anything's better than the present moment. Becoming, for example, that has a lot to do with the present moment. And in the Buddha's teaching, craving and attachment uh, what causes, is what, it's the second noble truth, has to do with suffering. Uh, so if that's so, uh, uh, examine it. Don't just uh, believe it. And the Buddha talks about one of the, the main sources of suffering, uh, coming due to craving, one of the main sources of craving is the craving to become. Uh, somehow, wherever we are, whoever we are, uh, it isn't enough inwardly. And so there's always someplace else that's better. If only I can do this, then I'll be a that. Because a this is not really any good. But a that would be. My problems will be solved when I get plug in whatever you want. And the practice uh, is to get us back to now, here. And some an ancient image is if you wanted... A, reach water, if you're trying to dig a well, you don't just start digging little holes all over the place. You dig in one place until you get water, assuming that there is water there. Okay, so the present moment, at first, it's just, it's just the conventional present moment. Uh, it's whatever it is. But as more and more we reside in the present moment, our energies, uh, as the Buddha put it, if you recall what I said last night, the yogi... Uh, sustain, the, the yogi sustains uh, himself or herself on the present moment. Well, what, is, what does that mean? What is uh, the nourishment that's in the present moment? Apparently, it's being said there is nourishment in the present moment. Okay. The present moment, as used here, and when you transcend the present moment by being with what is, what is is just simply, literally what it sounds like. Just with, uh, I, early on when I was practicing, I was asking one of my teachers again and again about enlightenment and all kinds of uh, you know, questions. And finally, he just grabbed me and shook me and he said, this is it. Because what I wanted was a Steven Spielberg special effect somewhere <laughs> coming up uh, when everything would be solved. And if I just sat enough if I did enough long retreats, or if I, uh, whatever. And he was just saying, this is it. Uh, these are the materials, it's always going to be it. Sorry. Now, the mind is, prefers some imagined reality, which isn't, oh, the humdrum of, you know, brush the teeth, uh, so there we go again, and they get dirty, you brush them again. Uh, same old dog, walk down the street, bow, wow, yeah, right. Uh, and then there's a hunger for novelty and excitement. Often we do rather stupid things that cause suffering for it. Okay, what this is saying is, uh, what, is the, what is really blocking us from uh, going deeply into the present moment and what makes it so special? Uh, becoming, it, it, I hope the word, it, it's clear. That is, somehow we are always, even when we sit, uh, if it's going well, the mind is already ahead of itself. What's next? We, boy, this sitting was so nice and still. Can't wait to get to my cushion. 
it'll be even more still. Or typically when people come here and have had some good sittings home, and then they, some people, one person actually did this, calculated how many, time, how many hours of sitting are here, and look how I felt uh, at home, and I only did 45 minutes in the morning, 45 minutes at night. Wow, you know, 10 hours a day times 7, that's 70 hours. It's just going to be fantastically way beyond where I am. Who said? That kind of mind is making sure that it won't be, or is contributing to, to blocking it. Okay, so uh, the awareness that we're talking about, when you don't grasp and you don't push away, uh, or when there's suffering, what are we really talking about? And what is the primary teaching of the Buddha and the most confusing one? It's, uh, it's self, not self. Uh, people get very confused. Well, if there's no self, then who gets enlightened and who's here and what decided to come here and so forth. Uh, first few years of teaching, I wish the Buddha had, had, uh, had two signata, but not that one. Let there be impermanence, let there be suffering, but do you have to say there's no self? <laughs> Can't we get there some other way? Because so many furrowed brows and questions. Okay. Let me um, finally got to that sheet of paper. This is a quote, two quotes from the Buddha, which I hope help us. The first one, birth is constant suffering. Wow, from the Buddha, bummer. <laughs> okay. Another translation, birth is perpetual suffering. Not any better. Okay. Then the other uh, quote, which sounds a bit contradictory if it's so terrible, it says, true happiness consists in eliminating the false idea, I. True happiness consists in eliminating the false idea of I. When we're spending a lot of time in the, in the fanciful, imagined future, and a past that's over with, and even the present is, is uh, uh, embroidered upon, okay? those are the materials that, that the me feeds on. It's alive and well. Uh, what else is it going to feed on? Let's assume for the moment that it is an illusion, the false idea of I. Well, then how does it keep being so convincing? Because we're very active participants in helping it. We're, we're nourishing it. Everything that's happening to us, we're identifying with it, and that self. Check this sometimes. Let's say when you're suffering, and I don't mean just physical pain, but really suffering even emotionally, we might talk of attachment and dukkha, See if that isn't just another way of saying me. There's always me in it. Who's suffering? You'll see. It's me. Your knee might be in pain, but as soon as it becomes my knee, everything is different. This is happening to me, my knee. The most important knee in the entire universe. Okay. Um, so what this is saying is that is the, the, you're not really going into the present moment with any depth. Because what we keep doing is using pretty much everything as materials to nourish this sense of me, keep it alive and well. Memory is a very big one. That doesn't mean that you should have amnesia or get a lobotomy. But, it, it, you, but watch and pay attention. How are you using the past? How are you using memory? We all have a past. We have families and roots and histories. That's not suffering necessarily. But take a look at it, if we're using it in certain ways so that it keeps us from going more deeply. This all presumes that you want to go to some place that's much deeper than where we've been cycling around all our life. Whether you call it, I'll call it original mind or true nature. You can call it something else if you like. Okay, so what to do? Well, uh, let me explain this. Birth is constant suffering. On one literal level, that is the body. If you do, it's true. If you do get born, if you have a body, there's bound to be some suffering. Sure. But that's not the deep meaning of it. 
the deep meaning is the birth of me and mine. And every moment that me gets born, uh, that's already the beginnings of suffering, and it's pulling you out of intimate, direct contact with reality. Because what we're preferring is a made-up reality that can be very comforting, it can be very frightening, but it's made up. It's a concoction. It's an idea. It's a fantasy. It's a view. It can be an ideology. It can be a religious belief. Uh, and the Buddha, as the practice unfolds, it gets more. The edge gets sharper and sharper. Where even you have to even throw the Buddha's teaching out. If you're attached to the teaching, then that's the raft that that Woods was talking about. Then you're going to suffer. Oh, but this is the Buddha's teaching. Well, it's useful to a point, and that at a certain point you're running around carrying a raft on your back, and you're already on the other shore. It's just a metaphor. Don't get overly carried away. Um, so this me and mine, uh, and now it says true happiness consists in eliminating the false idea of I. Um, in spiritual circles, you hear a lot about renunciation. Uh, I'll only have one meal a day. I'll uh, only have a certain number of hours of sleep. Uh, you know, and I'll only own a certain amount of clothing. I, I won't have too much money. Uh, and as if that will make you more spiritual. It can. You're trying to, let's say, cut down on desire. Not be so, uh, so wrapped up in becoming and grasping and getting. But for me, there's really only one form of renunciation uh, that's worth spending a lot of time on. And that is to renounce this tendency that we all have to identify with virtually anything as being me or mine. A thought comes through the mind. Without any training, what happens is the mind identifies with it. And what we call selfing happens, or is that thought is used to help nourish the sense of self. That is, we come to define ourselves by a mood comes to the mind, a mood, a thought, an image. And in the, what we've been practicing, the second mode of practice, choiceless awareness, um, the practice is, uh, added, there's nothing extra. A thought is a thought. I'll read, this is from the Buddha, from the Bhaya Sutta. I'll just give you this part. This is about how to, how to attain awakening. Bhaya, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the scene, there will be only the scene. In reference to the herd, only the herd. In reference to the sensed, the sense doors, only the sense. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. And it goes on. I'm not going to continue it. Um, our practice, uh, what that means is there's a thought is what it is. It's just as it is. It's a thought. It's not more or less. An image is an image. Uh, a sound is a sound. Now, the sound comes in, and then the mind makes something out of it. Let's say uh, we're trying to have a retreat, and uh, people building across the street start uh, sawing and hammering and so forth. Suddenly, that becomes noise. That becomes a problem. We're, uh, why do they let this happen? This is a retreat center. Uh, what's going on here? I came up here. I want some silence. All it is is <sighs> bang, bang. It's what it is. It's sound. We turn it into noise, we have a problem. Uh, so what we're learning in just sitting, in choiceless awareness, is to allow everything to surface and to be with it just as it is. That means when you do that, you're taking the nourishment out of selfing. Every time you identify with anything that's happening as being me, the easy then you're, you're enriching the sense of me and mine and the letting go of attachments to, let's say, cars and clothes and houses, that's relatively easy if you get committed. Not, not, not having a, a house, but letting go of the attachment to the house because it's my house and the house becomes me. Uh, my wife and I live in, a, a, there are three condos in this house that we live in. And the top floor, are, uh, there's a person living there 
who's very helpful because she's got an eagle eye for anything that needs to be repaired and improved upon. But it, she's honed it to the point of madness. Uh, and so it seems like all the time it's a scratch. We gotta, you shouldn't believe that there. You can't do this. And it's so obvious the house is her. Or when I got a new computer, as Doug put it, toys are us. <laughs> as he saw me being so happy, happy with my new Macintosh computer. <laughs> toys are us. Okay, so in, in awareness, we're not trying to eliminate the past. We're not trying to kill the future. Because if you become aware of it, you see, um, when there is an attachment to something as being mere mine, and it's not, and it's unaccompanied by mindfulness, that's when you, that's then me got born in that moment. What, what uh, this interpretation is saying, this is an inner level of the, of the uh, a Dharma interpretation. What it's saying is we're born many times in a typical day, maybe thousands. Uh, we get born into the occupation we are. We get born in, we wake up in the morning and we just are. And then it is, I am a man, a yogi, a meditator, uh, and then, it, and then the, the, the day unfolds and we start that keeps going, and with possessions, that belongs to me, this doesn't belong to me. Watch your mind. Now, it's not that you then get into a war with this sense of selfing, where the mind is taking whatever it can get to attach to and feed itself, so that this sense of self is very convincing. And past and future are two of its richest sources of nourishment when they're not understood. Okay, so the practice is... Uh, if something comes up, let's say me or mine, and it's accompanied by mindfulness, then it isn't born. It's just the idea comes up, it's just the idea of saying, this house is you. Uh, but mindfulness is right there. It's not suffering because it sees it, right? And the, the, the mindfulness takes the nourishment out of it. And so it's just something that happens. No problem. Now, whoops. Again, so what? Okay. It's this process, as more and more we get comfortable, it's the practice of liberation. It's another way of putting the very same thing. In the moments when we're grasping, that's uh, a moment of birth. We're giving birth to me as something. In the moments when we're pushing away, we're also giving birth. Test it. As me as not something, or as me, this shouldn't be happening to me or I'm so happy this is happening to me. But it's all about me. Okay. Um, as that starts to weaken uh, and starts to lose some of its potency, uh, and it's a very gentle approach. First of all, some of its understanding, the price that we pay, because what is said, and it's for you to test and see if it's so, is that this is the real source of suffering. In a very brief exchange, the Buddha is once pressed uh, in a nutshell, I haven't got time for all these, everything you've said and, and uh, all the monks are telling me about. What is it that you're teaching? Give, give, it to, give me the gist of it. And he said, okay. Uh, don't attach to anything as being me or mine. That's the whole teaching? Yes. That's the crown jewel. What's emptiness, at least in our usage of it here, that you hear so much about, shunyata, that means those are moments when there isn't a grasping onto something as being me or mine. That means that moment is empty of attachment to me or mine. And those are some of the happiest moments we have in life. They often come spontaneously. We have, you know, a few moments we're dancing with someone who also dance, we're in step, and it might be five, ten, twenty seconds where uh, the, the dancing has no me in it. And then suddenly, uh, uh, People realize how wonderful this is. And then once you got born, then, as a great dancer. <laughs> okay. And then someone says, I think you need more practice. You've got to polish your act up. You, you, you know, uh, my stepdaughter is into ballroom dancing, so I know this from the inside. It's another form of suffering. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
because eventually all these studios want you to compete for this, compete for that, and it's funny how you pay everyone for you to compete, and then they give you a little a notch above a doll, you know, if, you, if somebody thinks you'd, your steps are nice, and, you know, a photograph of you in your special outfit, uh, and so forth. You don't tell them. Okay. So t sometimes in life there are these moments when we're just free of it, and it happens spontaneously, but they're not so often, and so much of life we're on the line. Whatever happens to us is taken personally. Wrong look. You tell me. It causes wars. Uh, we identify with a particular religion, a particular country, and so does everyone else. It's not, the problem isn't loving your country, being grateful that you live in the country. There's one bumper sticker that I see, proud to be an American, and I realize I'm not proud to be an American, but I'm not ashamed either. I'm grateful to be an American. America's been just great to me. I've made so many boo-boos and it still forgives me over and over. <laughs> um, so the suffering can get really rarefied. Ideologies, ideas, intellectuals crucify each other over ideas. Crucify themselves. People commit suicide because they have certain ideas that are unexamined. They don't understand how the mind works. People during the Depression in the, in the 30s, early 30s, who had a fortune and lost it sometimes within a, a few days or overnight, jumped out of windows because they had so identified with their bank account that when they had no money, they were nothing. Do you see, do you see where this is going? Okay. Now, when there's just awareness, now here's the part we'll have to end this. Um, it's important for us to know it. What's happening is as more and more we stop making self and just being intimate with life, uh, because what represents itself as being me is an object. I mean, internally, I don't mean uh, physically. Uh, an image of yourself comes across. And if you identify with it, then <clears throat> that's who you, you are. You have an image of yourself as a, a very, very kind person, very gentle and kind. Self-knowing, the practice of bringing awareness into your life, uh, you may see moments when you see how you actually live, as Krishnamurti uh, encouraged me, uh, me to do, you see moments when you're not kind, you're not gentle at all. And so there's a head-on collision between reality and this image that you have of yourself. And it just falls to the floor in pieces, shattered. And it can be a loss because it was giving you a certain kind of security, not worth the name, because it's a, it's a creation that is so vulnerable. We make up a sense of who we are, identify with it, and then as long as nobody questions it or life doesn't question it or challenge it, uh, it, we feel sort of good. But inevitably it does get challenged. And the images do wear themselves out. They're not convincing. So thoughts about ourselves conclude. We have images of people. You're living with someone for a long time. Let's say a husband and wife or partners for a long time. You form an image of that other person. They form it of you. When you meet them, you're seeing that person through an image. Uh, unexamined, you don't even know you're doing it. And it might even be a nice image. Oh, there's good old Larry. He's a nice guy. I'm glad I'm married to him, even though all this cowboy stuff. <laughs> okay, but it's, it's because an image is a conclusion about a person. Now, intimacy of practice is when you start seeing those images, they fall away, and it's a great way to revive your relationship if you need it. Well, even if you don't need it. Uh, it's to stay fresh. If you live with someone, just start seeing what the mind has made up about that person. And when you see it, it falls away and there's a, a different quality of, of energy. And if the other person's doing it, too, then they're like four people living together. <laughs> there's an old uh, a case study by Ronald Lang. This is a, a long time ago who was a very famous uh, psych psychiatrist, a British psychiatrist. And it was a case of somebody 
the only way he could make love with his wife is he had to imagine some other woman. He had an image of some other woman. And it was driving him crazy. He goes to Ronald Lang, and Lang uh, helps him drop that. But then what they replace it with is, have an image of your own wife. Okay? Uh, now, if, if she's doing that to you, then there are four people making love. Okay. Dharma goes a little deeper than that. That might be an improvement. Dharma is to let go of all the images. Be with your wife. That's what intimacy of practice is. It's unmediated. It's raw. It's naked. I don't mean literally, physically. That's what it is. You're more alive. It isn't just another ideology. It feels different. When you taste food, and you really taste it, and we've had a chance to practice here, intimacy is you're really tasting the food as it is, rather than uh, doctored up by all kinds of notions. We went into that a bit a few nights ago. Okay, now, so what starts to happen is these images start falling away. Just this practice of choiceless awareness, where we learn how to relax, uh, the breath can help take us there, but our whole practice uh, in this style of practice is designed to help us uh, rest in the moment, in awareness, and to allow the mind and the body to freely present itself with whatever it's presenting itself as. And a lot of what it is, it's telling you who you are, representations, images, verbal conclusions, notions, memories of who I used to be, what I will be becoming, and all that. But if we're just watching it, that takes the power out of it, starts falling away. And then the mind starts becoming wider, more spacious, more silent, because um, the images are losing their power. And another dimension of reality opens up to us. We'll call, I'm going to call it silence. And when you, there's no good word for it. Uh, you can call it emptiness. In English, that sounds, some, someone has called it void. That sounds like null and void. Or emptiness means, let's say, okay, it's the absence of anything, but we want stuff. <laughs> you know, what good is this room? It's just empty space. We want stuff, people and mats and you know, uh, stuff to talk in and bells to hit and, you know, all kinds of things. Okay. But when the mind starts emptying itself of its content, all of its productions that it's worked so hard to create, to try to convince itself that it's okay, let me try to describe what's happening. Whatever comes in front of the mind is, is external to the mind. It's a, an object or a representation of who you are. Just the way a photograph of you isn't you, it's a representation of you. And so the mind is producing these representations in words and in pictures, and we identify with them, we make self out of them, and if we can get some nice images, we'll feel better about ourselves, high self-esteem, whole workshops are devoted to it. But if we don't, we have low self-esteem, I want a positive self-image. I have a negative self-image. That may be on the way and an improvement, but what Dharma is about is no self-image. Okay. Now take relationship as we head home. I am going to take liberty with our walking. Uh, may I? I mean, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> you know, it's fake. You know, it's sort of gracious. It's our last time. I have to. For my sake, just I know it's hot, and maybe you've heard enough. Um, because we're getting into why we do this practice. As uh, the mind starts emptying itself of its content, because it does it naturally, because we're not uh, feeding it with identifications. When you're aware of something, you're not identified with it. You can't do both. If you're identified with it, you're only partially aware, if at all. Okay. So as the mind empties itself of its own content, it will, naturally, watch it. It brings you to something that's always been there. It's not new. And I'm going to call it silence. Uh, and the Buddha, at one point, I've forgotten there, he listed many, many gradations of silence. Uh, no word's going to do it justice. But let's just say it's this place which is prior to thinking. It's before thinking. It is, the silence is, has nothing to do with culture. It has nothing to do with your conditioning, the family you grew up in, nothing. It has nothing to do with CNN. It has nothing to do with 
what your bank account is. Uh, as it gets deeper and more substantial, you realize it, it's a... Uh, how to put this? The Tibetans put it very plainly, the cognizing power of emptiness. Uh, there's an awakening of a kind of intelligence in that silence. Uh, the content of that intelligence is silence. And to me, it's mysterious because uh, some great healing, the, great, the most important healing goes on in the silence as that's activated. Uh, uh, when I tap it, in those moments that I can, I can't say I live there, but I, from time to time, have access to it. And retreats are, of course, a good way to begin to help us do that. But it's not reserved for a retreat. You can be walking in uh, Times Square, New York, and and suddenly come upon that place. But we have to get a wedge, an opening, to, get, to start tasting it. Uh, you, f you find you're more compassionate. You're wiser, and you haven't been practicing it. All the metta you could ever want is in there. If you want to call it heart, whatever you want to call it. And it's not cultivated. Uh, it, it's a quite extraordinary. At that point, I do not know what's going on. And it's, it doesn't bother me that I don't. So what we're learning how to do is more and more to rest in that silence, which is a form of, I'm using intelligence uh, to contrast it with intellect, which we equate with intelligence. I would say intellect is one kind of intelligence, but the intelligence I'm talking about is different. First of all, it's impersonal. There are every, all of us in this room are tapping the same intelligence. When our minds are not thinking, if your mind stops thinking and mine does, we're, we're the same. As soon as the thinking starts, then the problems begin again. Unless there's some wisdom that enters into it. Because it's not that thinking is bad, but as we tap it, it changes everything in life. There's a different energy that's released. Totally different. It's activated. And that quality of mind, when life touches it, it stimulates something, an intelligence, a wisdom, a kindness. These are just words that somehow is much better than our contrived human attempt to be smart, kind, wise, which are cultivated. It's all still in the mind. And here, what we're learning is deconstruction, to use a modern term. We're deconstructing what we've so laboriously built up, this sense of me, starring me. Okay. That's who we are. Awareness is who we are. Everything else, if you can see it, if you can be aware of it, how could it be you? It's external. In other words, the awareness Finally, you know what? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to have to wrap it up pretty. This is more cinema. It's not Western dar cowboy dharma, it's cinema a dharma. Uh, there's a film called The Three Faces of Eve. It's an old one, I think it's from the 50s or 60s. And it's about, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a documentary. It's a, a dramatization of a, a woman who had three distinctive personalities and, and the cure of working through all of them. A multiple personalities, what we, we call it. And at the end of the film, I jot these things down when I hear them. I don't remember who played the parts, who, any, maybe Betty David, I'm not sure. Who was it? Could be. Okay. So... Almost towards the very end of the film, I think it is the end of the film, the Eve says, who's been plagued, tormented by these three personalities, the three faces of Eve, she says, they're all gone. All that's left is me. Okay, now I'm not sure if that me is exactly the me we're talking about, but it's getting there. Uh, it, it might be another more stable identification. I'm not sure, but do you see what... It, so with us, if you keep letting it go, letting go, finally there's a certain something that you can't let go of because you are it. Uh, so finally, what we are is this awareness. That's another word. And then the question becomes, well, what about my uniqueness, my personality? What about action? Uh, the challenge in Dharma then becomes living from that place and demonstrating, not just in an interview room or at a retreat center, but in daily life, demonstrating uh, something's happened that, that you indeed are kinder and wiser. 
that you are contributing less to other people's suffering and your own, etc. Um, so the purpose of all this is more and more not to live in our identifications that we've used a kind of enclosure through thinking, uh, which we then identify with all of that, and we think that's who we are. We think that's who we are. As we start observing, the whole structure starts to thin out. We see it all rising and passing away. They're contradictory. They're uh, inconsistent. They don't last. This one comes. I'm a this. No, I'm not a this. I'm a that. Uh, some of you have been quite articulate about the mind fighting about, should I be here? No, I shouldn't be here. So we're in there with Eve, I guess. Okay. But at a certain point, it, it starts to fall away. It goes into abeyance. I'm not saying it's eliminated. And what remains is who you are. And uh, you won't complain. The, now, it, the, sometimes this uh, stimulates fear. Oh, my God, who wants that? And whatever it is that's afraid, that's the old mind. That's the me. That's the me-making machine, the ego, if you want to call it that. And it understands that uh, there's no room for it in silence. In other words, silence uh, not admitted. I mean, ego not admitted. And so, from the point of view of the old mind, this is a deprivation. This is frightening. Of course, it wants to stay alive. Everything, uh, it's a kind of organism, it wants to stay alive. Uh, and so, there, uh, as practice gets deeper, and it comes out of just this simple mindfulness practice, by simple, I don't mean easy, but it's paying attention. And of course, a lot of it is getting to know the, the, the unfolding of the mind itself all the stories and reassurances and doubts and uh, memories and plans and worries, and how to relate to them sensibly. Now, when we tap that energy, and this is, you know, Buddhist texts don't say this. Uh, I don't think it's inconsistent, but this is what it feels like to the best of my ability. When the mind gets very silent, what you're tapping, which we're always tapping, the energy of the universe. We're part of the universe. It's just we're getting at little drips, drip, drip, like a faucet that's not fully turned on. Drip, drip. Uh, when that faucet, when we let go of who we think we are, all the notions and concepts and images, uh, delusions in the Buddhist scheme of things, uh, and we tap that energy, what we're tapping is that energy which animates the whole universe. And it might say, well, well, that's just for great mystics, you know, and for monks or nuns, I'm just an ordinary person. Not necessarily. It depends on what you want. Uh, there have been plenty of ordinary, so-called ordinary people. It's not that far away, but it feels far away because we're so um, trapped and caught up in trying to fix up our personality, trying to improve it, make it a better self-image. Give it more of this, more of that, take away that, refine it, polish it, make it a better person. Th those are worthy, but this is going beyond that. Um, and then from that place, more and more, learning how to act. Even if it's just a few seconds here, a few seconds there, you can feel that uh, there's something enhancing life. And presence not an idea about who you are, but just pure presence, when you are that. Um, there's no fear there. There's no regret or worry. That thought may come creeping in. It can be seen. It's just, it's just a notion. So attachment to notions, that's one of the last to go. And um, it's, you're fully alive. So this journey of intimacy, at that moment, some of you ask, well, what is... Intimacy is that, when you're intimate with yourself. But then it sounds dualistic. What do you mean, intimate with yourself? One ancient image, which is uh, a challenging one, it's like two empty mirrors facing each other. Uh, it's not you're in intimate with something else called me. Is that you are it. There's no place else. So the intimacy is there's no separation, because... What are you separated from? You haven't created something that you've separated yourself from and then try to practice with it. Okay, I don't know if it's, uh, whether it's clear or I'm uh, 
delirious from the heat or talk, <laughs> talked out. Uh, don't underestimate simple in and out breath. Don't underestimate simple awareness of just your life as it is. Could we have a few moments of silence? afterthought, even a glimpse of this, just a little tongue taste now and then, uh, you, won't need, you won't need me to convince you. You'll know that it enriches your life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.